Folks, our, our guest speaker today, we're very honored to have him. I missed him when I was on sabbatical this summer, but I heard from many of you wonderful things about uh, Andy Royer and his family. Andy is a graduate of New Tribes Mission, which I know many in this church are champions of. Also a graduate of Grace College and Grace Theological Seminary. He's been serving in vocational Christian ministry for the past 10 years at Christ's Covenant Church. Um, he is on a mission now. His family, his wife, his three boys, they're going to leave in December and go to Brazil. That's the hope. And to minister and, and preach and teach and train indigenous Brazilians and, and tribesmen to go out and to share the gospel all over where the gospel is not known and, it, and is not named. We're honored to have him here this morning. He's going to share a little bit about his ministry and also share from the word in Psalm 96. Would you please give a warm welcome to Andy Royer. What a privilege to be back with you, Coast Bible. Uh, really glad to be here. Now, just briefly, my wife and I and our three boys, um, after having lived in Winona Lake, Indiana for about 15 years, are, have sold our house. We've packed up, got rid of most things, still have some cars to sell and that sort of thing. But then we are moving to Brazil December 2nd. We have plane tickets and we're in our last stages of goodbyes and preparations and all the little details of that sort. So, um, privileged to be with you one more time before we make that big move. Uh, uh, Pastor Neil mentioned it. Uh, we are working with New Tribes Mission in Brazil. And Brazil is a great land of disparity. There's, there's uh, very overly developed cities, massive cities. Sao Paulo is one of the largest cities in the world. 20 million people in the metropolitan area of, of Sao Paulo. Second highest helicopter traffic in the world where people commute to work on their helicopters. So you have that, and then you have 350 entire people groups who are tribal, who are cut off from civilization. Half of them uh, only speak their language, their own language. They don't speak Portuguese. They don't have contact with the outside world and will not hear the gospel unless someone moves in, learns their language, lives among them long enough to learn a language that's not written down, writes down and identifies an alphabet, writes down all their words, translates the scriptures into their language, teaches them the scriptures, sees men and women converted, raises them up as leader and sends them out to reach the rest of their tribal group. It's a long, long haul to do that process. And uh, we are just playing a tiny part in that what we'll be doing specifically, um, I'll be teaching Brazilian nationals most of them coming from the city and teaching them God's word and preparing them to go to these tribal groups. They also serve in tribal groups in Africa as well. So amazing to see God moving mission not from just America to the east, but from south to the north and from the east to the Middle East. And mission seems to be exponentially happening from everywhere to everywhere as we accelerate here, I believe, in the end times as we get closer and closer to when Jesus comes back. And um, so we are, as a family, very thrilled to be a part of that and um, are excited. Our kids are pumped to move to Brazil. I know they don't totally get it yet. Um, what it's going to be like to need to learn a language. Um, my wife is excited as well, but she's going to need to learn Portuguese as well. Uh, the Lord has blessed me in that I was born in Brazil, 
so I speak Portuguese and I have citizenship and we're able to just move in and, and pick up and actually start teaching in January. So thinks it's going to be a quick transition here. And so we would appreciate your prayers for our family. As you can just imagine the details of getting a normal American home down to about 12 suitcases and then move them to another country and then reset up um, in, a, in a new home there. So just picture that, what it's like for you. That's pretty much what we're going through, uh, all of just the, the details of those things. So yeah, pray for us. Pray for us in the next month, if you will. I think specifically, we're just praying that God would govern our hearts with his peace because or else stress can just go through the roof. And I mean, just, just picture what it's like with you your, and your family and your kids. And it's really kind of what it is for us. It's no different. We're not, we have no superpowers, as you mentioned, in that department. So um, the Lord is giving grace and we are so thankful for that because I think to see your kids just haul their stuff out into the yard and sell it and be glad about it. Like you just know that something has happened supernaturally in their heart to allow them to do that. And so I'm just so thankful to the Lord. Well, we're going to be looking at Psalm 96 this morning. So I'd encourage you to actually pull out your copy of scriptures. If you don't have one with you, I did notice there were some maybe under the, the bench in front of you. You can pull it out. I would encourage you to look at it because I think that you'll be most benefited if you're looking at it yourself. Uh, Psalm 96 is a beautiful piece of poetry, and many of you are squirming at the idea of poetry, but it actually is an amazing piece of poetry that was preserved for thousands of years for us to look at this morning, and it's so valuable just to take a minute and look at it. In fact, if you read your Bible from the beginning, you'll notice some of these words in here sound familiar because actually most of it was already found in the Bible if you're reading through. In fact, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 contains the bulk of this because it has its place in Jewish history. And so just just a brief moment on that. Um, King David, when he's bringing the ark into the tabernacle, into into Jerusalem, into this place of worship, he orders or has this psalm written, this song written, in response to what God has done. So this was a fresh, new worship song for Israel in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. You can go back and look at that if you'd like. But they're responding to God's greatness and to what God has done by writing this psalm. And we get to read it again. And it was preserved then in the Psalter for us to be able to use. It was possibly used then later on as just a part of worship ceremonies. So here we are, chapter 96, verse 1. I'm going to start reading there and you can follow along. Verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord 
glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exalt and everything in it. And shall all the trees of the fields of the forest clap there or sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes and He comes to judge the earth. And He comes to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. If you're looking at this as a piece of poetry, it goes one through six, and then it repeats itself in another way. And we're going to look at the first six verses this morning. And if you have time this week and you want to go back and meditate over the rest of that, do it. I would encourage you to. But let's just look verse by verse through the first six verses. Look at that first verse. There is a command right there, isn't there? I mean, just uh, an instruction right off the bat. What is it? The very first one. Sing what? Sing to the Lord, specifically, a new song. Now, just a couple observations. Is there is this instruction to worship God. A couple things about it. Notice, sing to the Lord. This worship is directed to God. That's where He is the object of our worship. He is the subject and it's directed to to Him, or to sing to Him, specifically, a new song. This is fresh worship. Now, to them, they were, they were singing uh, a fresh expression of what God had done, something He had done, right? He had, just, he had just brought Israel to this place where they were able to have the ark in Jerusalem. It was an amazing moment for them. They were praising God for something He did. And the instruction is, sing to the Lord this new song. And I do think, as a principle, we can gather that. I don't know that we always have to have you know, a, a brand new song or an impromptu song or something like that. But I think there is this idea of worshiping God with, as a fresh expression, not running off of old worship in our hearts, not running off an old encounter we had with Him way back in whenever that was, not going off of something we saw about Him or something we saw Him do, and now we're just kind of perpetuating this, you know, this, this thing that we're doing, but understanding, having this fresh encounter with God and offering to Him a fresh worship. I do think, church, we want to be challenged not to just make our worship rote and by memory and just a thing that we come and we do and we get done and we move on without considering the realities of the words that we're saying. A fresh worship, singing to God a new song. Now, we get further instructions even in verse 1. It says we're to sing again to the Lord. Who? All the earth. And now... It gets a little further. Verse 2, sing to the Lord and bless His name, right? This is for His benefit that He would be blessed. Now don't we sometimes, not all the time, don't we sometimes get that backwards, church? Do we not sometimes come to worship 
to be blessed. Now, that is a byproduct. As we worship God, we are blessed. That does happen. But don't we sometimes look for that? And I can catch myself doing that in a sermon. I can come away saying, oh, that was really a good sermon because I'd never thought of this one thought before. And I was, what is that? I was entertained intellectually. That was a really good sermon. That guy was really dynamic or it was really funny. It was really entertaining. Whatever it might be. And we walk away with this sense of, of about me or worship was really dynamic. I was really moved today. Well, that's really great, but bless His name. Do you come in church into a worship service wanting to present your, your worship to Him that He might get something out of worship? That He might get something out of worship. Sometimes we turn it around. Now look at verse 3. I do think that there's a sequence here. I do think this was on purpose as the Holy Spirit directed David to write this. That it starts with worship and blessing His name. And we're singing to the Lord. And then we get to verse 2 and we bless His name. But then we tell of His salvation from day to day, right? That's our next instruction. Tell of His salvation from day to day. But do you notice it starts with worship and then it moves into evangelism. It starts with blessing His name and then it moves into telling of His salvation. I I love this quote from another pastor who wrote this. He says, When the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worth, the light of missions will shine to the most remote peoples on earth. And I long for that day to come. Where passion for God is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. Churches that are not centered on the exaltation of the majesty and beauty of God will scarcely kindle a fervent desire to declare His glory among the nations. Even outsiders will feel the disparity between our boldness of our claims on the nations and the blandness of our engagement with God. You see, church, it does start with our understanding of who God is and what He's done. Because you can't give away what you don't have. You can't give away what you don't... You can't commend something you don't cherish. I mean, you can muster it up, I guess. Right? We can muster it up and, and by duty go out and obey. But man, I think that misses somewhat of the heart of it. I think of, um, I think of a grandmother. Some of our missionaries mentioned being grandparents. I think of a grandmother like my, my mother who has, carries around in her purse a little picture book with all the pictures of her grandkids. Have you ever met a grandmother like that? And she's like, it's like she's selling you her grandkids, like how beautiful they are and how, how they're the most special and gifted people in the world. And nobody told her to do that, right? There were no instructions for grandmothers that said you must be um, toting over your grandkids. It just spilled out of her hearts. And as much as you just endure this, you, you're charmed by that. Or um, a, a few years ago, I don't go to see a lot of movies, but I went with a bunch of guys at our church and we went to a midnight showing of um, oh, uh, X-Men. Wolverine, and there's this guy, he's got these claw things, and he's riding this 48 Harley, and he's skidding. So I'm telling my wife all about it. I'm going home, like, and then, you know, and, and she's never going to go see this movie, but I'm just, I'm selling this thing, and it dawns on you, like, when you see a good movie, don't you go and tell people about it? Like, you're now an automatic salesperson for that movie. 
And, you know, nobody at the theater at the end said, hand out cue cards, now make sure you get uh, the director's name right and make sure that the producer is this and that. And they're not, they're not telling you how to do that. If you're affected, if you're stirred by this thing, if somehow it resonates in you, you go out and you tell other people about it because you want that to happen to them as well. Or it's like uh, the engaged girl, right, and her new diamond ring. Does that not show up in every pose? Like... Like she is just, hey, how are you? She's waving, you know, she's waving goodbye, like you, and she's just in love and doesn't care, who knows, you know? And that's good, right? It's, I mean, that's just a charming aspect when you see new love that way. But church, I think there's a sense that when we see God and His glory and His value, And we begin to be in awe and enamored with Him that it spills out naturally. And you don't have to conjure it up. And you don't have to duty go and do it. Because you value it and it leaks into conversations. And I think we want to start with that. I think we want to start on God and His glory and His value. And this is what the passage does for us. Verse 4 gives us a little more motivation. And I mean, just before I go to verse 4, I do want to say, do you notice back in verse 2, tell of His salvation from day to day? How did that sit with you? It doesn't say every day, like every single day you must go out. But it says from day to day. You get the idea that this is pretty like a normal habit, a pattern in your life. How, how is that pictured in your life, Christian? Are you telling of His salvation? Could it be said of you, like if we were just taking inventory of your life, could it be said of you that you tell of His salvation from day to day? And man, if you're a teen in here, let me say it, if you're a follower of Christ, this applies to you. This isn't waiting until you're an adult. If you're a kid, even a, even a kid, you might be in grade school. This, this is for you too. Are you telling of His salvation? You don't have to wait till you get old and crusty to do that. I now qualify on the old people's football team. When did that happen? I guess at 34. What? Where did that come from? But Yeah. Well, um, yeah, declare His glory among the nations. You guys uh, probably have a great understanding of this, understanding of this term, nations, but just briefly want to say something about that. What is that term? Literally, this Hebrew term, goyim, means um, non-Jewish, right? Some older translations said heathen. Some translations say um, Gentiles. Uh, It gets a little bit confused in the idea there, but the idea is not the Jews, right? The rest of the people. Um, We get our, our, our English word ethnics or ethnicities from some of the Greek translations. Um, and so we end up coming up with ethnic groups. This word nations is a great word for this. this. These are people groups. And when I say that, when I say nations, when we see nations in Scripture, don't think countries. Okay, countries are geopolitical boundaries that are man-made. Uh, some people made it up, and they're always changing. Sudan split into two countries recently. I think there's 193 countries represented at the UN currently. It fluctuates a little bit. If you count the Vatican and some of these other ones, it could be 196. Those are countries. Man-made boundaries, comes and goes. People groups 
were decided long before countries. These are, these are a people group, uh, a, a collection of people who count themselves as a people. And they may or may not have a country. just depends where they fall. Now, would you want to venture to guess how many people groups there are? It's scary and hard to even guess, right? It's even hard to define it because you define it by languages. Well, if it's languages, we'd say there's about 7,000 languages in the world. So we have to at least start with 7,000. But if you wanted to define those languages, because we understand as Americans, we're quite a bit different than the Irish. We wouldn't say we're necessarily, the, I mean, someone says they're Irish. They don't mean like, or American or Canadian. Like we say, oh, we're definitely different. We have some fundamentally different ways of looking at the world. So we'd say the Irish are a different people group than the Americans. But if you start making those splits, we're quickly up to like 13,000 people groups. And if, if you just wanted to go by people's own definition, like people say, no, we're a distinct people group. If we went by self-proclaimed distinctions, we're up to 23,000 really quickly. So we have much work to do when it says that God wants his glory declared among all the nations. There's a bit of work to do. Even just, let's go off of the 7,000, the smallest number, just to be conservative, right? 7,000 people groups in this world, 2,000 of them have zero gospel in their language, not a single verse, not a single drop, no Christian presence, no known believer. 2,000 of them. And what if I told you that this church could be a part of seeing that happen? by praying for missionaries who will go out, by sending maybe some of your kids, by challenging and growing them up with this worldview that God desires His glory to be known to all the nations, raising a church that understands and sees and values God's glory going to every tribe and every tongue and every language. Well, let's move on in the passage, um, or else we'll never get to, to lunch. But... Um, the passage starts to give us a little little bit of a picture here. Uh, you know what? I, need, I do need to pause and not rush through this. Don't automatically think tribal group in the middle of Brazil also. Like that's maybe where our family's going and, and we're sowing into that. But you guys have been challenged here at Coast, right? To expand your guest list. Have you not been challenged even last week to do that? Understanding? Do you understand there are nations here among us in this county, hundreds of nations. And you know what one of them is? Americans. <laughs> they are a valid nation in here. Don't think that it has to be a different one than the one you're in. Like, you're one of those nations. And he desires his glory to be proclaimed to every generation as well. So if you're a stay-at-home mom and you have kids, that is a valuable, valuable mission field. Don't think exotic, off-somewhere, spicy-colored people, you know, in, in a rainforest somewhere. Like, that's... <laughs> don't jump there and somehow devalue the ministry God has for you in your neighborhood and in your family and in your cubicle at work. Like, this is part of His plan. And He has placed you here as a witness to declare His glory. Don't wait for some people to be motivated to go to some other country church. It's for you as well. Don't wait, kids, until you're old and crusty to be important and significant like you as well. This is for you. 
Okay, so verse 4, because why? Why do we do all this? Why do we need to declare His glory? What does glory mean anyways? Verse 4, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is great. He is worthy of praise. He is greatly to be... He's, he should be praised among all the nations. That's the way it should be happening for he should be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. Now that's a strong statement. But the Lord made the heavens. In other words, all those other gods or the things that set themselves up as valuable as God, as worthy of being having allegiance, those are imposters. They are taking the place of God and they don't belong it because God, he made the heavens. He is the creator, and as creator, he has rights over his creation to be worshipped. So whether it is a spirit or a demon that's masquerading as God in um, putting a tribal group under their fear and needing to um, have sacrifices to appease them and give them valuable life and encouraging violence and chaos, whether it's those things that have set themselves up as God, or maybe in our country, the things that have set themselves up as the most important priority. And that could be um, things like wealth or power or fame or legacy or sometimes even good things that we would, we would want to never sacrifice and so we might pursue things to an end and miss out on God as the one who is worthy of our allegiance. Maybe they're idols of the heart, not made of hand. But Colossians 1.16 tells us that everything was created for, by Him and for Him. We are made for Him, not Him for us. And I love... Um, verse 6, I have it boxed and underlined and highlighted. It's one of my favorite verses. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And for them, the idea of sanctuary was the place of his presence, right? It's where God dwelled. That's where he lived. And look at this. Splendor and majesty are before him. And in case you're tempted to think, wasn't that a little bit narcissistic of God to be wanting everybody to come around and praise him? In case you think that, be tempted to think he's maybe the maniacal kid on the anthill wanting, playing and messing around with his creation, Look at this and consider this reality just for a second. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his presence. And isn't that, church, what the world longs for? Isn't that everything the world is chasing after? I mean, take them one by one, right? Strength. Don't we lust after strength and power? Don't we set ourselves up as countries to demonstrate our strength? Don't we even call that a demonstration of strength? We march a bunch of aircraft carriers and we scramble a bunch of jets just to show how strong we are. And if we don't have real wars to fight, we make up little fake ones where we throw a ball across the, or whatever, and, and we try to take and knock other people down and we get it to this end or we put this one through a hoop and we'll pay people millions of dollars if they're strong enough or good enough to do it. Why? Because we love power. We're hardwired to love it, actually. We're made to love it. There's something in us that really likes that. Or what are the other ones? 
beauty. Don't we do that? Who's the most beautiful person in this county? And when we find that one, we move them on. Who's the most beautiful person in this state? And it doesn't matter what they know or what they like or who they are. If they're beautiful, we'll pay them lots of money. We'll try to find the prettiest woman in the country and in the world and then the universe as if as if there are other women in other universes, but we'll just pay them. We'll put sashes on them. We'll give them crowns. Why? Because we love beauty. It's a billions and billion dollar industry in our country. We love beauty. Why? I think because we're made to love beauty. Splendor. I mean, I had a beautiful wedding, I thought, and a bunch of people came out to see us get married, but a couple years ago, when a certain prince of a certain country got married to a certain young lady did not millions of people tune in to watch that wedding because of the majesty and the pomp there was something regal about it that the world was drawn in to watch and everybody got dressed up and they're like these hats that look like pretzels and stuff going on and yeah you know that hat too yeah i Why? Because there's something majesty. But I'm telling you, in the presence of God, there is power that is unrivaled by anything our our country can put together. We live in a powerful country. In His presence, there is beauty like no diamond or person or gold or silver or glittering or technology. There is no beauty that compares to what we find in His presence presence majesty strength and beauty and isn't it kind of god isn't it kind and merciful of god to want people in his presence and when we tell of his salvation isn't that one of the kindest things we could do to invite people into his presence both here in our county and abroad this isn't anything new in, in the New Testament. Obviously, we're preaching out of the Old Testament, right? This is from the beginning. I will make you a great nation, and you, through you, will come blessing. And all the countries of the world will be blessed through you. All the, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Isn't that from the beginning? And, then, and, then, uh, and, and didn't that happen? Didn't people come from all kinds of other countries to the temple to learn about God and and understand his precepts and his wisdom? We saw that happened in history. And by the time Acts 2 happens, were there not God-fearing people from all these other countries, all these other people groups, all these other nations were already God-fearers? Because God had accomplished that. And then Jesus gives this this command, go and make disciples of everyone. Every nation baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and I will be with you always even until the end of the age. And he gives this command. And haven't we seen that exponentially happening, spreading throughout till now? We finally say there is a, a, a church in every country of the world and now it's pressing into every people group. And if we skip to the end, isn't that what we see God has accomplished in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 when he says that... Um, some are gathered there and worshiping God from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Revelation 7, 9 as well. God accomplishes that in the end. That's what He is moving all of space and all of time and all of history toward that one end. And church, the question is not whether... He, 
Like if somehow you don't do that and get involved, His plan is going to fail. It's not. He's going to accomplish His plan. The question is, are you going to sit on the sidelines? Are you going to be a part of what God is doing throughout all of history and drawing men and women to, to glorify and worship Him? And glory just means value. Just means literally weight, but this substance and value. Like humans have value. We have a sense of glory because we bear His image. A nation has a sense of glory. I think Egypt was, Pharaoh said to have glory in Egypt. It was a sense of value or worth in, in the world. And God has this, this value, this glory that's above all of it. And He assigns, we actually get our value because we're made in His image. We carry value. So just concluding, I want you to consider, and this, maybe this week just go back into Psalm 96. Ask the Lord some of these things. Like, Lord, do I live for your glory, your value, your weight, that that might be known? Or am I living that my weight, my value, my worth, my beauty, that m- am I propagating my value to the world? Am I peddling my value? Am I selling my value? What am I excited about, Lord? Is it me or is it you? Maybe you're question you're gonna question, maybe the, the Spirit's gonna speak to your heart about your worship. Who's the object of your worship? Are you are you centering it on God? Is He the one you come to bless and serve that He would benefit from it? Or or have you turned that around to kind of a meology, uh, a self centered worship? I mean, is is God, is Jesus your monarch? Is he this king or has he become some sort of mascot in your life i'm not sure what how the lord would want to lead this church and i trust that he will but are you fully surrendered are you fully enlisted are you pot in are you sold out are you pointing others to him let me tell you about this king let's pray Father, you have demonstrated your greatness over and over and over. Your faithfulness from one generation to the next, all the way back from the beginning. And so, Lord, we have a lot to stand on. Um, Father, your greatest demonstration of love to us in your Son coming to die in our place, that we would re- that he would receive your wrath, your just wrath, and we would be pardoned. That's amazing. And so, Lord, we give you credit and praise, and we f- ask, Lord, that you would come and deal with us in our hearts, in the areas where we've we've put ourselves in that p- place. Lord, would you speak to your church this week? And lead us in your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.